Broadcasting from the beautiful Hill Country in Texas, this is OneRadioNetwork.com. And it always happens when I press that button. It's the same thing. I, I, don't, I don't understand. It's just magic. Well, good morning. It's the 4th of January. Happy New You. And it's a Wednesday morning. Oh, my earphone just fell off. Beautiful uh, Wednesday here in Dripping Springs, Texas. Hope you had a nice holiday, holiday, whatever you want to call it. Holiday, holiday. And we're back at it, and we'll see what we kind of trouble we can get into in 2023. Financially, it looks like there's going to be some fun stuff coming around. And uh, our financial guy, who's on once a month, Fred Dushevsky, and the Real World of Money, and he is going to be here in just a moment. Let me tell you uh, later on this morning. After we deal with Fred and throw him back in the closet and sell gold coins and silver coins, uh, we're going to talk about uh, uh, what we do most often. Uh, it takes a long time to get young, which is our trademark, and uh, uh, the book that we're writing, the screenplay as well. And uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about this whole idea of I've really had some deep insights into tension, just any kind of tension, and how it's affecting our health. And our it's just crazy. Uh, no wonder everybody's sick tension. Think there's any tension in your life? Well, work on it. So there we are. Uh, you'd like to join the show, 888-663-6386. The email is patrick at one radio network.com to the great state of North Carolina or South, North, South, North, South, South Carolina <laughs> is Fred Dashevsky, who's the owner-operator of U.S. Coin Capital, former partner of Andrew Goss. And speaking of that, it would be, it's going to be four years? Four. Four years, four years. in a couple of weeks when Andrew left. Unbelievable. Oh, man. I remember that Sunday morning. It was a Sunday morning, wasn't it? Uh, Sunday morning? Uh, yeah, Gina. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah, it Gina, was over a weekend. One of your, uh, yeah. your employees called me, and it was not good. And uh, it was not good. But Andrew is, uh, I'm sure he's having a good time wherever he is. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm sure we can only hope so, we right? Can, we can only hope so. He was, a, he was a good man. I'm sure he's in a good place. I'm sure he's in a good spot. Well, Fred is here. We're going to talk about money. If you uh, care to join us, as I say, you can call or email. So we were just amusing uh, coming on the air about 2023. And uh, you had suggested that we could see some really curious fun things happen you want to tell us about what you see on the horizon here well sure you know i mean 2022 was kind of an interesting year um uh, the way i look at it is that we're still of course dealing with after effects of what we've done to manage the past couple of years and i know it kind of gets lost because we have news events that occur on the weekly basis and on a daily basis so you know, the big picture stuff kind of fades away. Right. But, you know, we've accumulated a monstrous amount of debt and spent a tremendous amount of money in the past couple of years. And, you know, I, I make the analogy. It's like, uh, you know, those like cheap fill up pools you can buy at like Walmart. And, you know, you imagine covering that thing and pumping water into it. This is kind of like what we're doing to the economy. We're just pumping money and pumping money in. But, you know, we've got a couple pinholes in, in the pool so, you know, the money is leaking out a little bit here and there. Otherwise, the pressure would build up and, you know, everything would flow over. And that flow over, you know, it, it happens when so much money has come into the economy in such a short period of time that it has to show up somewhere. 
And there's so much going on in the economy. There's so many fingers in the pot that it gets spread out. And a lot of times it's not visible because we have statistical data that hides this and hides that and the way we account for things and gimmick the game and, you know, label things with fancy names. And by the time we're done, it's sometimes really hard to see, you know, but eventually that water pressure builds up and we find a leak. You know, so the last year or so, that leak was a massive amount of inflation that's filtered through the economy. It was inevitable. And then we had the Fed trying to address how they were going to deal with it. First, by denial. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like they went through the stages of, of grief, you know, <laughs> denial and anger. And right. So the first one was denial. And, uh, you know, there was no inflation. It was transitory. It was going to disappear. And they, they stuck to that for the first quarter of last year. And then eventually that became so insanely ridiculous. It was like trying to tell the, the neighbor when the water's pouring into his yard from your pool that you keep filling when the pinholes are pouring water out that there's no problem and yet his yard's getting flooded and he's like well wait a minute i got a flooding problem there's obviously something going on yeah. you're putting too much water into your pool you need to slow it down so you know the fed's going to try to address this and then toward the end of the year we got everybody gimmicking uh how far they think the fed's going to go to fight the problem that they've created so you know they're an inflationary economy uh resolve is to raise interest rates to fight off the beast that they've created and they've started that process and the question now becomes if you do that too much and too quickly do you risk the possibility of slowing the economy so much that not only do you push back on the inflationary problem but you spin the economy into a recession which would then require you to lower the rates that you just raised so now everybody's trying to game the theory out and say, how far will the Fed go? Have they already overdone it? Did they wait too long to start raising rates? What's going to be the result now in 2023 after the after effect of all of this manipulation? And it seems like the smart money is lining up toward we're going into a recession. And that recession is going to be problematic because the only resolution to recession is to try to stimulate economic activity, which is just what you spent the last year reversing. So on top of this process of back and forth raising interest rates lowering interest rates the fed has suggested it's going to do its unwinding of its balance sheet and i know we've talked about this a couple times but i'm sorry five trillion dollars is a monstrous amount of money that the fed is holding in treasury bonds that it says it's going to try to unwind over the course of this year 5.5 that's got to be a oh, five five and a half Five and a half. Okay. Uh, we shouldn't ignore that $500 billion, billion dollars, you know? Right. And, and I don't know when this happened, but somehow we've all accepted this transition. We just sort of like let it go by like nothing happened. But we've gone from billions to trillions without even really recognizing that change. Everything we talked about in the early 2000s had to do with billions of dollars. Everything was in billions, mm -hmm. hundreds of billions, yeah. tens of billions of dollars. Even 2008, it was a $900 billion bailout, 970. So about a trillion, but even the largest bailout in U.S. history to fix the biggest economic disaster we've seen since the Great Depression didn't even cost a trillion dollars. And now in 2023, I almost said 2022, uh -huh. You know, everything has converted to trillions, everything we talk about, the government deficits, the size of the new government budget, $1.7 trillion. And we've made this transition without, I think, any recognition of how ridiculously much larger three, three trillions zeros. are over yeah, billions. Three zeros. I mean, that's like a, what, a billion 
Well, a trillion it's is a thousand billion. Fold, it's, right? a, it's a it's thousand. A thousand fold larger. So, you know, imagine you're, you're, you're six feet tall. So if you're a thousand times bigger, you're <laughs> 6,000 feet tall. You know, if you're a human being at 6,000 feet tall wandering the earth, you know, you are a monster problem. So I, I really have a That's real issue. That's a great issue metaphor. I like that. It's a, it's a great metaphor. A 6,000 foot person walking around. Uh, right? You, How ridiculous you think would that he's a problem? Be? And yet... Is, is that an issue? How much food would a 6,000 foot tall person consume? And how would you walk through the streets without, you know, being oh. like Godzilla crushing Tokyo? You know, I mean, the Do, numbers are insane. Just, and, and I am really worried about this. Yeah, I know you are. Just for, um, just for comparison, uh, you may not know this, but I, if we looked at this number, Fred, today, I'm looking at the H41 release, which is 8 trillion, 500 billion five and a half of those are treasuries and the other stuff they got mortgage-backed securities. I guess they're still hang, hanging on from the MBSs they bought in 2008, right? They're still on the balance sheet, right? They're still on the balance sheet. That's still on the balance sheet. This is 2023. All right, so we've been sitting on that since 2008, have not been able to unwind that. We've added five and a half trillion since then in additional debt in the form of bonds and other stuff. And now the Fed says it's going to somehow be able to unwind all this stuff quickly without interrupting the economy. And, and I, I've seriously been dry, diving into what entity is large enough to absorb that quantity of debt? You can't sell that by doing auctions like they host every week. You know, we have bond auctions weekly for the government to raise revenue. And they might sell, you know, 20 billion, 30 billion, 40 billion. That's massive. How do you do 400 billion in additional debt instruments being sold by the Fed into an economy while simultaneously the government is trying to raise revenue on a weekly basis to pay its bills? And you said the I reason why they have to unwind is simply confidence right china uh, other people buying treasuries they look at this balance sheet and it just means that they've created eight to nine trillion dollars to buy stuff pretty much well it's because people are starting to add up that along with all the other obligations of the government so um forgive me if this lighting creates a problem but i can't see this without a little bit of help here that's okay okay so uh just as a point We've talked about the fact that the government's about, what are we saying, 32, 32. trillion in debt? That's what they claim, okay. Fred. That's what they claim. Right. The, the problem is, is that's only the bonded debt, right? right? So that right. only covers the liabilities that include uh, treasuries, notes, and bonds. Right. It does not include unfunded liabilities. Correct. Okay. Starting with the largest two, Social Security and Medicare. Between the two of those, there's $77 billion a trillion, excuse me, seventy-seven trillion dollars between those two in unfunded liabilities. What does that mean? If we seventy-seven that, trillion, that's really stretched out, though, right? Uh, uh, how do? What is that number? About a decade or two. Okay, okay. But it's a it's a liability of the government, and and so between the seventy-seven trillion Social Security, Medicaid, and the thirty-plus trillion in bonded debt, mm-hmm. for the first time in American history, we've crossed a hundred trillion in total national debt obligations. And on Social Security and Medicare, I believe this is a close number. They need to take $450 billion out of income tax revenue to do the Social Security thing because they took all that money years ago. Yes. Okay. 
Is it so 450? Is that close? The, the, the fact that it's an unfunded liability is because we actually took <laughs> what was supposed to be a trust fund and spent the money. Right. Yeah. And now it's coming due because we have the aging of America. And we have more people now withdrawing from than are contributing to. Mm-hmm. And that gap is creating a need for the government to come up with money. So it has this liability. It owes this money. And, and the fact that we ignore that, uh, all those unfunded liabilities. And remember, there's about 170 various government trust funds besides Social Security and Medicare that also have unfunded liabilities. No, the government has obligations really? that are uh, that are exhaust, uh, exhaustive. So there's, a, there's 170 trust funds other than Social Security and Medicare that they've taken the dollars out just like they did and they owe every month they got to put it back in? Yes, they have unfunded liabilities. In other words, they have people who will be retiring, who will be expecting to get retirement funds, and the funds are not there because the government has taken it upon itself to spend that money ahead of time, figuring one of two things would happen. Either they'll somehow magically come up with a solution and come up with the money when they need it, or Congress will change their mind about the obligation to pay these people, which is, by the way, the rationale that they use for not counting (laughs) Medicaid and Social Security they rest on the idea that Congress could always change its mind about accepting those obligations, that they might, for example, default and, right. and say to everybody right. that owes oh, Social Security, you know, sorry, you're beat, you've paid all these years, but we don't have your money and we're not going to pay you. Do you know what that, do you have any idea, Fred, what that total is on the 170? Is there a place you could, I could love to look at um, that. I don't know what the total is, but I know the bulk of it is in the, in the big two. Social Security oh, and, and Medicaid. So right, they but, account for the largest portion of, of that. Of course, that's um, a huge amount. The yeah. other 168, you know, they probably account for uh, maybe another $10 trillion worth of money. Oh, total 10. You, you don't have any idea what the yearly I don't, is? I don't. I, I haven't because there's so many of them. I haven't gone into each one to see how much the shortages are. Uh, but I know that they exist and they're getting bigger. And the thing is they're growing. These obligations are increasing. And increasing at a pace now where since 2011, they've doubled. So the obligations of the government have literally doubled since 2011. And on this kind of trajectory, this is not slowing down. Yeah. And my problem with this is that, again, because we've crossed this billion to trillion barrier, the numbers now are ridiculously large. Solving these problems is not simple math anymore and not merely a matter of, you know, one quick government change or one congressional act will solve the problem. We're way beyond that. We're we're so far beyond the ability to come up with even a, a way of resolving this that I don't think there's anything but the default, which is to print their way out of the problem. So maybe they'll call it the Social Security Retirement um, saving plan, mm-hmm. you know, and Congress will authorize this act to enact, you know, $50 trillion to be paid out to Social Security to cover its obligations. But I think this is an insanity that we run a government that is interfering in the economy and has done so to such a degree that it has left the public with this monstrous obligation that that forces the public to deal with the onslaught of this pushing of capital into the economy. And I, I really worry for people that are, you know, like in their 40s or in their 50s, even those like even in their 60s, the time frame now for the loss in value of money because of the volume that we're printing has really accelerated. Hmm. And it's created a big problem. I, I wonder how younger people 
are going to try to save money. Like if you're 30 years old and you're thinking about your future, how do you save money when government obligations are growing so fast that you can only expect a deterioration of the value of your capital? Again, the numbers are getting rather large. I mean, a trillion is kind of a big number. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, um, so, so we just painted a picture then, you know, uh, as Andy used to say, it's not going to crash until it runs out of zeros, but do you think there's somewhere along the line that something really dumb has to happen before they grow up and, and do something? Well, what I have to wonder is how far do we push this before the public wakes up and realizes yeah, there's know. a problem? I, I mean, you know, the inflation numbers, when they kicked in this last year or so, look at the outcry we got from the public. Look how fast people reacted. You know, inflation went to, what did it hit, 9%, let's say? You know, again, That's using government statistical yeah. data. So at 85 or 9% inflation, you have people screaming. You know, my cost of food's going up. My cost of labor's going up. Cost me more of trucking. Everything I need to do is going up in cost and price. I can't ship anything. I can't buy anything. I can't do any business. I have to pay higher wages. Insurance costs are going up. And the public was really, there was an outcry. Enough to where Congress said, you know, we have to do something. And the president came before the, you know, American people and said, what is my number one concern? Inflation. When's the last time you heard a president say that? I mean, you got to go back to, what, the Carter years? Uh, yeah, of course. And of course, what, what do they? He, they couldn't do anything anyway. What could they do? What could a president? Well, do? my know? point being that it, it got so loud, the public got so loud oh, that I the see. president had to respond. Yeah, right. had to say something about it. In other words, he was getting so much uh, heat coming from everybody. It was telling him, "Hey, our constituents are telling us their number one concern right now is inflation." You need to do something. You need to address it. You need to let them know you're aware of it. You feel their pain. You know, address the issue. Don't ignore it. And that's at nine and a half percent inflation. And my concern is that we are creating an environment where inflation is inevitable. And with these unfunded liabilities growing as fast as they are, mm -hmm. this is not going away. I don't care what they tell me about the current economic environment being resolved and that inflation was a short term issue because of supply chain problems. I think that's crap. I think the problem is, is that it's this pool issue. We have been pushing water into a pool, and it is beginning to seep out. And it's seeping out anywhere it can. If we plug one hole, it's going to pop out somewhere else. But it's going to perpetually keep leaking. Fortunately, we have a drain at the bottom of the pool. That is our tax collection process. Otherwise, this would happen much more rapidly. If it weren't for the fact that we drew some money out of the system by collecting taxes, this would become very yeah. clear to the people you, much more yeah, what is what are what are uh 1040 revenues uh, about four trillion something like that four trillion dollars yeah pretty pretty big okay um, so you, know, you could imagine if those four trillion were not sucked in to the government and just running around buying starbucks and and milk and coffee and tea and guns and stuff yeah so what did the government have uh just give me half a second here yeah. treasury reported assets of 4.9 trillion dollars at the end of 2021 so 4.9 came in from, from taxes. Yeah, that was their assets. So, and they're looking at a $30 trillion obligation of debt. The difference, you know, the 32 trillion, we call it. So uh, the difference between the two is what they feel they owe. And they say, well, you know, we owe 32 trillion, but we had almost 5 trillion in assets. So we really owe about 28 trillion minus again, or ignoring again, all the unfunded liabilities, which is it's just insanity. It's like, it's like a, you know, having a payment due in six months 
and payments that are due on a monthly basis. And when you're counting up how much money you're going to need in a year, you forget about the stuff you're going to need in six months and only count the stuff you need monthly. Hmm. You forget about the fact that in six months, you're going to have this massive bill that's going to come in. You don't, you don't ignore, you ignore that and don't count it as part of your obligations or concerns. And I think this is, this is insanity. And I think this is going to catch up to us because the higher this ratio gets, the more obligations the government has, the less ability it has to pay off its debts, the more it needs to draw funds from its only resource. And that is you and me. And that's going to come out of one of two ways. It's either going to come out of your pocket in the form of inflation or higher taxes. But I think we're facing an inflationary problem that is simply not going to dissipate the way that they're trying to tell us this temporary environment we saw last year. You know, it may increase a little bit. It may decrease a little bit. But the idea that it's just going to fade away, like none of these other problems exist, I think we're we're just we're, you know we're we're ignoring something very fundamental. So Fred Dushevsky, is is the difference between now and 1977 the amount of debt and how did that just fade away? I mean Ronald Reagan came in what 81. They, how did how did they stop the inflation then? Do you remember? Well. At, they raised interest rates to a point in the, in 1980 15%. to slow the economic environment down to a screeching halt. Right. All right. So by successfully doing that, uh, and again, people were not happy about that. You know, you had well, there was the one benefit was that you could park money in CDs and get 16 or 17 percent a year. It's huge, yeah, huge. Right now, think about that today. Imagine if I told you you could earn 16 percent on your money in a legitimate he'd be banking there in a, instrument. He'd be there you know, in a heartbeat, a, right? Not a crypto, not, not a, you know, not <laughs> right. something that's, you know, or, uh, something tangible, something real. Right. Money is there. Banking institution, FDIC insured and back, and you're getting 15 or 16% return. I mean, that is massive. Today, if you go to the bank and they offer you, you know, 2%, people are excited. I Somebody was talking to yesterday, uh, I've gotten three and a half percent on my interest. I'm like, wow, three and a half percent. You know, oh. it's exciting. Oh. So that's what we've come to. Um, yeah, well, of course. Uh, when you so when you just, do those numbers, we have to say three and a half percent is your bottom number. The top number would be inflation. You subtract that, and that's what sure. you got. And if inflation's fifteen percent, you're still losing twelve, right? Of course you are. Right. But again, that's not something that people no, see they don't, that they way. Don't think about that because all they see is that their bank account, the amount of money, the number of dollars has increased. They don't look at the buying power uh, because the loss in buying power is not something that you are taxed and it comes off of your dollar like a bill. It's just something you begin to perceive over time that you're paying more for things and you're getting less and less for your money. And again, unfortunately, it shows up in different areas. So sometimes it's hard to see when it shows up in things that people recognize like food costs you know, okay, it's right there in your face. It's hard to miss it. If it shows up in other places in the economy that are hidden for a while and and the Fed, for example, intervenes and hides the problem by creative financing, let's call it, um, they can get away with this stuff for quite a while before people see it. And then suddenly there's this massive change. You know, you kind of wake up one day and go, wait a minute, what happened to that thing that used to be a dollar? Now it's three and a half bucks. You know, wh when did that happen? It kind of catches people by surprise. And unfortunately, I think people are going, to, are going to experience inflation like they have not seen since the 1980s in the next couple of years. And it's going to be more subtly hidden. So they may not experience it as obviously as we saw last year, but it's going to be just as detrimental. How will, how will it be hidden? I mean, meat and uh, groceries and gas and 
rent and everything goes up, how will it be hidden? Well, if the government delays the flow of the money into the economy by burying it, you know, like when the Fed buys trillions of dollars and puts it on its balance sheet, it hides it for a while. You know, so it's like ducking the dead under the blanket and don't don't pay attention to it. But now when it says it's going to try to unwind this, it's releasing all that inflation it created. So when they do that, how are we not going to experience that? So they may be able to hide it for a while by shifting it under the blanket. But at some point when they try to address it, it's going to become a big problem. And I'm again, I'm concerned about the fact that the size of what they're trying to address now has leapfrogged. You know, we've jumped from the a, a deal of, of trying to address something in the tens of billions or hundreds of billions to now trillions. Yeah. Well, trillions of how much was that omnibus thing that they just signed? 1.7. 1.7. And then if they, once they start taking these treasuries out into the open market to try to because they got to borrow this money, obviously. They'll either borrow it from the open market or, you know, private, and what the people don't buy, the Fed will buy, right? Do you- right, or raise the money. You know, they'll, they'll get money through taxes as well. I mean, this is the total, this is the government budget. This is what they plan to spend. More you know, no, no, I thought trillion. the 1.7 was just an omnibus bill that's separate. Well, this is their, yeah, this is their fiscal budget for this period of time. So this is the point at which they're going to say, this is what we need in our next oh, round. Oh, I see. So this is, but the Fed's, the Fed's, the Fed's spending is more than 1.7, isn't it? No? Oh, well, but yeah, they are. And, uh, you know, even interest on the debt, it, we know, is one and a half trillion oh, yeah, a year. Yeah. So just as a bill, again, <laughs> and, and this omnibus bill 10 years ago would have probably been $100 billion. Yeah. You know, not $1.7 trillion. Yeah. So the size of these, you know, issues again is multiplying this is not good Fredrzejewski this is not good this is we're no. we're, this is not good this it's just no. and, uh, and quietly these things are happening behind the scenes right. again getting buried by news of the day and I think that people are, that are thinking about their future need to consider the fact that we're going to have an erosion of the value of the U.S. dollar and whether we see it right away or whether it happens over the next few years because they delay it through these gimmicks mm-hmm. people need to be prepared for it and I think you know, the gold and silver markets have been responding to the pressures of inflation, um, been held down a little bit by a stronger dollar. But other than that, we're beginning to see that leak also, you know, and that is a leak that they try to really plug quickly. They don't like it when gold prices and silver prices climb no, they don't like because it. that's something that people see. And and it's it's an evidentiary example of information that's readily available and it's recognizable and it's instantaneous. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. You know, that's a signal that they try to really curtail, which is, you know, we've talked about the manipulation of the price of gold and silver. Um, but I know there's an exerted effort to try to keep those prices from climbing too quickly gold because is, that's yeah. kind of like a warning sign that there's obviously a fundamental dollar problem. Gold is up 18, eight, $18 this morning. Silver's still at $24. And Fred uh, buys and sells gold coins for a living in the U.S. coin capital that we talk about. Um, to me, $24 silver Someday that thing's got to go, huh? Can we? What can we buy from you if we believe that silver is going to go a lot higher? Do you? What do you? What would we buy from you? What do you got? You know, I think the smartest play in silver is just silver. the simplest. 1964 and earlier quarters in dimes and half dollars, really, because they are as close to melt value as any product you can buy. They're comparable to almost any other form of physical silver that you can take possession of, and they have two unique characteristics. They are legal currency constitutionally issued under the United States 
Secondly, they cannot be reproduced. So the supply of them is already limited to whatever exists and is available out there in the world right now. So the likelihood that they would increase in value over the years is very strong because of the fixed supply. And when you couple that with the increasing supply of paper, which tend to conversely respond to each other, the more paper we print, the more expensive that old silver diamond quarter would become. But from a buying power standpoint, you know, a silver quarter in 1964 was a gallon of gas. And a silver quarter today is, you know, six and a half, seven bucks. I mean, it'll buy three two or three gallons, two, three gallons, gallons of gas. Of gas. Depending on where you Isn't are. that a great story when you really think about it? I, I remember the day I was a senior in high school, 64. We had an old 52 Chevy that my brother had. It was about a quarter a gallon. I, I remember. Yeah, I paid, you know, when I first started yeah. driving, which was in the late 70s, it was, you know, 57 cents a gallon of gas. And, you know, if we could scrape together two or three dollars, we could get our car to the beach. You know, yeah. that's all you really needed. You know, now if you try to put two bucks worth of gas in your car, what's the point? You'll, you'll squeeze the handle. It'll be like, you're done. <laughs> but that same silver quarter, if it's pre-64, right? Pre-64. Yep. Six, well, pre-65. Pre-65. 1964. Yeah, earlier. one of these little guys that you could take to any coin shop anywhere in the United States and probably get five bucks for it, right? Five or six bucks. Yeah, at least six. Yeah. Really? Absolutely. So it's crazy. You know, uh, the buying power has remained intact because it is something that's different than paper money. It's an item of fixed supply. It has intrinsic value because it's made of something that in itself has value. And this was the, or always the idea that money was never supposed to be fundamentally based on fiat. The yeah. idea of, you know, accepting the government, uh, printed unbacked note and and if you think about that who are we accepting this note from we're accepting this note from a government that you know recognizes it has a hundred trillion dollars in debt obligations and it does not bring in that amount of money it spends a dollar 20 for every dollar it brings in so not only can it not sustain its current budget how is it possibly going to pay off its other debt obligations coming up in the future when it's bleeding money at current paces the only way it can possibly do this is to print it. And if they're going to print trillions upon trillions, a hundred trillion dollars over the course of even a decade, does anybody really think that through about what that would do to the value of your money? And again, it may take time for that to filter in. But again, I think kids that are in their 20s and 30s, by the time they're you know my age, uh, if the dollar hasn't been cut by two thirds, I'm going to be rather surprised. Hmm. Um, uh, Fred is with us if you care to join us Patrick at OneRadioNetwork.com do you have um, can we buy silver coins in a numismatic so we get the collector value as well as the silver there's such a thing yes so tell me so about the, those the I want one of those <laughs> yeah that's a lot of fun yeah. um, the next tier up from the you know run of the mill and I hate to put them that way yeah. but you know the run of the mill circulated quarters and halves would be let's say the old silver dollars the old silver now dollars. they're interesting because they're 40 years older you know they stopped making those in 1935 30 years older right um instead of 1964 when they ended the dimes and quarters and halves they had stopped making silver dollars in 1935 they did really? so they were cut off a lot earlier wow I didn't now know. you can get great quality and i mean pristine mint condition silver dollars for about $200 and change. Uh, you can go down to one grade lower, like an MS-64 in the $125 price range per coin. And these are high quality, museum quality, certified and graded 
examples of hundred year old silver dollars. And they're they're in little plastic cases too. So they're graded by NGC. Children and industry holders, and, absolutely. And they're in the early thirties, nineteen twenty, nineteen thirty. Um, most of them actually go from the 1870s, wow. and believe it or not, the 1880s dates are rather common. I know people think that if they're older, they would be rarer. It actually goes by the number minted and how many have survived uh, more than age. Hmm. Age is a variable, but the more important one is availability and quantity, which comes from either how many were minted or for one reason or another, how many survived. So the ones from the 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s are readily available. And I think they make a great way for people to put away long-term capital. Plus, they don't have the bulk weight, you know, of buying. If you're buying $100,000 worth of silver quarters, dimes, and halves, a lot which a lot of people do. Yeah. yeah, it's a couple of hundred pounds of silver <laughs> that you get in there. That's kind of fun. You know, but... a full bag <laughs> weighs uh, about 50 pounds and a bag is uh, about $25,000, $26,000 worth of silver. Mm -hmm. So if you're buying 100 grand worth, you know, you're getting literally about 200 pounds worth of silver. Gotcha. And you're getting about something like a bowling ball squared off in size. So you need like, you know, four times that much for every $100,000. Now, if you did it in silver dollars, you know, those NGC row boxes that we have, which are those, you know, nice little mm -hmm. uh, gray or red boxes, they have 20 slots, you know, you take... 20 Morgans at $200 a piece, you can easily accumulate a hundred grand worth of silver dollars and have a lot less weight and space than doing it in the form of the old bags of quarters it, and dimes. To so the best of, of your knowledge, like nothing is, you know, nothing is uh, guaranteed, but you'll think these silver dollars in this 1880 range, they've, they've gone up continually in their numismatic value, Fred, over the years. Never mind yeah, the silver. Yeah, they keep creeping up. Um, there was a peak at one point. Uh, you know, market demand had driven up prices before the grading services because there was some confusion about how many of these existed in the high-quality grades until the grading services started counting, and it turned out that there were a lot more than people had anticipated. So there was a softening of prices. That uh -huh. was going back to, I mean, late 80s. Um, and once that had corrected since then, they have just been creeping up in price a little bit here and there. And, you know, over the years, the $50 coin becomes $65 and then $72 and then $86 and, you know, so they keep getting more valuable. And then there are really rare coins. I mean, there are silver dollars that have sold for millions really? for a single coin okay. uh, simply because they're so ridiculously rare. Um, now you're getting into the ultra quality of coins you know i mean it's now you're investing in something that is so unattainable that you know you could have we used to say bill gates money or elon musk used to have money money um <laughs> before he spent <laughs> 45 billion on twitter <laughs> yeah i don't know what his net worth is but i know it's it's gone down considerably well, the past his six stock months, has got clobbered in the last year yeah. oh yeah yeah, 70% drop in that stock. Ouch. Um, you know, and, and again, we had talked about this at least a year ago that the stock market growth that we had seen was coming to an end as soon as the Fed started raising rates. And sure enough, the Fed started raising rates and the stock market started to falter and, you know, managed to squeak out last year without any real loss or gain, but went nowhere for the year for the first time in many years because it had been thriving on the in, on the environment of interest rates stagnant or getting lower cheap money and once the fed reversed that and started raising it the whole game came to an end mm -hmm. so i think that problem is going to persist going forward as well that we're now still facing higher interest rates are forcing a completely different market environment than we had when interest rates were getting cheaper it was it was like a, an easy game to play you could borrow money for almost nothing you could buy your own stock and raise its price 
simply by buying your own stock. Which is what Everybody they did, right? loved it. Everybody did. Because all the stockholders watched the stock price go up. Yeah, so all the companies did that. But then that game came to an end, and then they had to actually now justify these higher prices the stocks had achieved, and a lot of them couldn't get there. And, of course, if they had a bad quarter because – you know, now we're hitting into a recession or the COVID problem hit, uh, whatever issues these companies had to deal with, their stock values corrected. So I think stocks are becoming uh, an option for people, but they're not the kind of easy money-making uh, uh, area that they had been coming into last year. And I think that's going to also persist throughout this year. It's going to be a much more difficult market going forward this year than it was in 2020 or 2021. I don't know how close this is, but... Uh I follow Martin Armstrong and have him on the show. He's got this um, thing called Socrates, this AI thing that he's used for years. He claims that he looks, Socrates said, and, and at the end of 2022, the real um, everything, including food and transportation, uh, in um, inflation, uh, 32%. He said it went up, It was a 32% inflation rate in 2022? 2022, everything, if you add everything in wow. there. Is that possible? Socrates well, is a pretty smart uh, uh, AI thing, boy. It's pretty smart. I'm not sure, you know, how he what what he uses to derive the statistics. So, um, you know, if we look at the expansion of the money supply relative to the growth in the economy, there was a huge gap there. But I I, I don't know how he's come up with that number. Oh, I don't know that it was like thirty percent. All he says is, let's see, a combined rate for everything from food to transportation at thirty two percent. 2022, that's a far cry from the official number. This is simply calculated by Socrates or AI from an unbiased perspective. And I guess this computer just puts everything in there. You know, he's, he just, Okay, so what he's probably done is he has an algorithm everything. that runs cost increases across everything. the board on a number of things. Yeah. Um, maybe includes transportation costs and fuel costs and everything like oh, that. Yeah. When you do it all yeah. on average. You know, that wouldn't surprise me because I think in the real world experience, um, the end result of everything that we probably saw throughout 2022 would be if you went back to 2020 or 2021 mm -hmm. and said, if I did X, you know, remodel my kitchen or bought a new car or, well, I don't know if that's a good analogy. Um, you know, any of the things that people would have spent their money on and compared that a year later, how much more would those same projects have cost? The fact that they would have cost 30% more would not surprise no, me. Not, so no. I, I, I don't have a problem with that statistic. I just don't know how he derived it. Because I've talked to people with lumber and all kinds of building stuff, and those things went up in the last two years huge. Some of them 50%, oh, yeah. pipes yeah. and just crazy stuff, you know, right. just bolts and nuts and like, what's up with that? And my point is, is that why suddenly that happens? You know, it's not like it happened out of nowhere. It didn't happen in a vacuum. Right. It happened because we've been pumping money into the economy for a few years to solve all the economic problems. And I find it particularly aggravating <laughs> that the default position now from Congress and the Federal Reserve is whatever the economic problem is, just print the damn money. And we'll worry about the inflation problem and all of the exacerbations that come out of this later, we'll, we'll deal with that when it happens. Right now, we're just going to solve the short-term problem because it's politically expedient. And we don't want to hear people crying to the point where the president has to come on national TV and say, inflation, of all the things that we're dealing with, is the number one concern uh, of the president of the United States. That, to me, is troublesome. We have a lot bigger issues that America should be dealing with than having the president have to focus. And first of all, like you said, 
what can the president do about inflation? What is he going to do? And what is the government doing in the middle of this anyway? We, you know, we have a separation of church and state. The, you know, the government is not supposed to interfere in any religious processes. They're supposed to leave all of that fair play. Nobody gets any kind of benefit. Everybody's on the same playing field. I think we should apply the same principle to economics. Get the state out of economics separate state and church separate state and economics the state does not belong interfering in the economy we need a more or less a fair type of economic environment where the free market deals with these problems so that the people can really see what's true not be lied to and befuddled by economic gimmickry and then because of that they get blindsided by things that seem to come out of nowhere but in reality were very obvious and and potentially could have been thwarted ahead of time yeah boy it's very troublesome and then when you start talking about things like pension funds around the country they're in sad shape you know they're and uh, the government you know they're going to come up and just print money and, and, and bail them out you know they're going to do that they're, yeah i don't think they're going to default on the obligation i, I find that hard no, to believe they can't. so i, I mean what are people going to do just go out and and they're depending on this money and they're 60 70 years old and then what are they going to do just caught in the street. Right. No, they're, they're going to. And, you know, like we talked about the, money, the fact yeah. that one of the reasons the government likes to keep inflation numbers low is because of COLA, cost of living increases. So they are required by the government to pay higher rage, rates yeah, to got, people. I got that a good raise this year. I got a good raise. Okay. Yeah. So where's that you money? You and everybody else. <laughs> yeah, me where and does every, that money come from? Yeah, where's that money? Well, they borrow more of it, which is what they do. Well, that's my point. You Jeez. know, and, and the fact that we had the largest COLA increases last year than we've seen in, I think, 20, 30 years, yeah. um, you know, is an indication of how significant the problem is. Because the last thing the government wants to do is pay out more money to people that it pays obligations to because of inflationary problems. <laughs> well, that's why they're trying so to kill us all we, off, right? <laughs> so, yeah. like, get, few, get, get COVID and die. Don't let's let get one of the few, money, uh, few coal guys, you know. Oh, my God. This was just, what a timely question from time, Tammy. She said, I'm 65 and thinking about Social Security. How do I figure out when to take it? And thanks for being on. That is a great question. I, I talked to Andy years ago uh, when I was uh, getting around that time. That's, 10 years now and uh, I think we figured out just to go ahead and get it Andy and I we put a you know we, we did all the he said well I, I would just sure. get it and you could use the money but I don't know uh, how do Back you of uh, the napkin mask. yeah how do you figure well, that out well it depends on what the options are you know so you can take your social security and what do you do with it so you got to figure out what you're going to do with the money I mean I make my house you know, what I do with where, mine. <laughs> yeah <laughs> I do <laughs> seriously that's what I do with it you know, putting it in the bank and hoping to earn interest on it, that's kind of a losing proposition when inflation is higher than interest payments are paying out. That doesn't leave a lot of choices. And I think this is part of the problem Americans are experiencing right. is the lack of options. You know, the real estate market was on a tear for a couple of years. It was insane down here. And I know it was the same across the United States. The prices were going up, leapfrogging. I mean, people were buying homes relisting them and selling them for more a right. week later without doing Huge. anything right we knew that market was obviously topping when that kind of nonsense was happening and again like the stock market the real estate market was thriving on the low interest rates and falling rate environment that's really conducive for growth in real estate it's right. wonderful for the real estate market so prices were going up and prices were going up and people were able to sell their homes and make tons of money real estate values increased then rates started going up and it was like somebody really slammed on the brakes. So the real estate market has slowed down to a point now where 
it's not the same as it was. It's not over by any means. There'll still be growth in real estate in various areas, and we're back to much more normalized kind of growth rates there. My point simply being that as an option for investors, it's just not a simple win-win now to just jump into the real estate market because it's constantly going up. So that's off the table. You have to be really you know, smart again about buying proper real estate investing. And, Same thing with stocks. I'm looking here. I just it's got... Not, I, excuse me for interrupting. I'm sorry. But it, I, I, it's 6.83, pretty much average now for a home, right? 6.83. Wow. That's, that's considerably from, higher than it was a year ago. That's from Forbes. Uh, yeah, that's from Forbes. I don't know if that's... No, I'm sure that's relatively accurate. And think about what that was a year ago. What was it? Probably three. half that. Yeah. Oh, three or four. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a lot on mortgage payments. That obviously adds tremendous amounts to the monthly payment and prices people out. Prices people out. So that's when yeah. we got we get that change. So if we say that real estate is still good, but it requires again, you know, a lot more work, a lot more knowledge, you know particular value and being diligent it's just not a simple you know get rich quick scheme anymore the stock market the same problem it's not as if there aren't some stocks that will go up but it's a much more difficult market than it was a year or two ago where are the options for investors the normal traditional thing to do in these times where options are off the table is you park money in something secure and safe and usually government issued debt but the problem with that now is the government issued debt is paying very limited amounts of interest in an environment where inflation is twice or all three times what the government is willing to pay you for your debt obligations. What if you, so, uh, what if you loan that, the government 30 years? What do they pay you? What do they pay you? Uh, where are we now? Uh, 4%? I'm, I'll Google it here. I'll Google it here. Uh, Go I think ahead. The 30 year. Yeah. I know the 10 year and two year are still inverted. That's not good. Tell folks, paying what, higher tell folks what you mean for that. Yeah, so that's what they call the, what do they call that? What is it? Uh, inverted yield curve? An inverted yield curve. What is that? Okay, so so all that means that. What does that, that mean? Yeah, simply speaking, the way this should work is that if you hmm. take out a two-year debt obligation from the government, in other words, you buy a bond that's supposed to pay you out in two years, right. or a five-year note, or a 10-year bond, the longer that you hold that debt, the more interest they should pay you because you're willing to loan them that money for, for a longer, longer, period, longer period of time. Of time. Sure. Yeah. And the theory is, is that if the longer debt instruments pay more, the money that is investing into these instruments will go for that longer term debt, which the government likes. It would rather be able to pay you off over 30 years than have to pay you off over two years. Because they like kicking the can down the road. It's just normal. Well, yeah. yeah. It gives yeah. them more opportunity to inflate okay. the money and figure out another way to come up with the, the, the payment. But in the meantime, it's not something they have to address tomorrow. So, so they year, like the yeah. longer-term debt. So a 30-year bond but should be paying happens, more, a lot more than a two-year, correct? Or right. five-year? And what happened is that the yield ver curve got inverted, which means that people have focused on only short-term debt, drove the value of those higher to the point now where a 10-year is at about 3.5%, I think, at this point this week, and the two-year is like, almost four percent so Whoa. you can actually get more money on a shorter term debt than a longer term one What's and that is bad for the u.s economy it's bad for the government and it's also a signal economically uh, historically 
of an um, impending recession. Anytime you get an inverted yield curve, it's usually a signal that we're heading into a recession because it tells you that something is out of whack. Because the people- the government's obligations are so short term that they have to come up with so much money so quickly, uh, they don't have enough time to generate the revenue they need to pay off. And people don't want to do a longer term because they understand inflation. And they end- exactly right, you know, right? Okay. why would you hold something for 10 years that pays less than something that holds two years when 10 years from now you think the value of the money is going to be 50 percent of what it is today right. it doesn't make any sense okay so that obligation that opportunity is off the table and again my question is what's left where can people park their money and what's happened as a result of this there is a monstrous amount of money just sitting in the u.s banking accounts right now just sitting there uh, because people just can't figure out what to, do. what to do. And I understand that problem. Yeah, I just looked here. A 30-year treasury is um, paying, where is it, three 3.8. So Yeah, just under 4%. So that's less than, than what you can get if you borrow, lend it to them for two years. Yeah, that's the problem. So why, would you, yeah, why would you lend them, why would you lend them money for 30 if you can do it for two and get more. I mean, that's crazy. Uh, good question. <laughs> yeah. crazy. And so that's the side of that's inflation, Fred, where people just intuitively know that things are going to go belly up or could go belly up or get worse. Well, it's, it's a concern that they recognize that the rate of inflation is way higher than the interest payments currently being offered. I and it, it takes away the uh, demand. You know, it, it kind of drops. Like, why would I want to buy that 30-year? But the government has to sell 30-year bonds. It has to raise capital, and it gets its biggest bulk of buyers in these longer-term obligations because those are usually bought by larger investments like um, pension funds, central banks around the world, and a lot of these you know massive portfolios of investment capital, these hedge funds. They like these longer-term obligations because it gives them the ability – to say, we know the next 30 years exactly where we're going to be. We know how much we're going to gain on our capital. And even though they're ignoring the buying power issue, they're able to at least have stability to this point where, you know, they're not buying into a stock like Tesla that's going to drop 70% over the year. They can assure their investors they've got a long-term stable investment portfolio. But, but what I don't understand is if they want to sell 30s, why why doesn't that drive the rate up because not as many people are buying them? Wouldn't it be higher? So what am, what am I missing here? Well, what happens is if the demand is focused on the short-term end of the yield curve, the right. two years, for example, right. all it's supply and demand, right? So right. everybody's capital pouring into the two-year, the rates go up. The rates, well. So they'll, they'll why, pay more. Well, yeah, but they'll pay why would the rates more. go up if everybody's buying them? So what am I missing here? I keep... Because there's more demand for them. Oh, because there's more demand. Okay, okay. We want more hamburgers. So you have and- a squeeze in supply. So you, yeah, you, okay. you pay more. But going out on the 30 year, it's the opposite. You know, you're getting a detraction there and a less willingness of investors to hold that longer term capital. And again, it, it's a weird circumstance of economics, but it does seem to hold up over the past 50, 60 years or so that anytime this yield curve gets inverted to this degree for this long, it is an indicator that we are heading into a recession. And I think that's why most of the smart money guys um, uh, out there are pretty much accepting the notion that 2023, we are in or going into a recessionary economic environment, which again, creates a big problem for the Fed, You know, which is now, again, if we remember, 
what are they doing right now? They're not lowering rates to fight off a potential upcoming recession. They're doing the opposite. They are raising rates because they're still fighting off the inflation problem they created in the last couple of years. And again, not to repeat myself, but simultaneously, they keep telling us they're going to try to unwind their own balance sheet during this period of time. I, I think 2023 is going to be a really difficult year. Well, I, I'm sure the, the Scotch bill there at the Fed Reserve Board uh, is, is, is high these days. Now, the Federal, the Federal Reserve Board, they are, they are federal employees, right? And then the bank is the private ones, correct? Is that the way it works? Well, yeah, the, the Federal Reserve Chairman is appointed by the President of the United States. The board is then uh, comes through congressional approval and comes through the Federal Reserve Banking System, which, again, is congressionally uh, handled and approved. So, yeah, fundamentally falls within the government auspices. But the board is basically, let, let's call it a liaison between the Federal Reserve Banks and the U.S. Congress. So the banks, which own all the money and own all the capital and make all the decisions because they own everything, mm -hmm. they decide what they're going to do. They basically tell the Federal Reserve Board what to tell Congress. And then we hear from the chairman and he reports to Congress basically what the Federal Reserve Banks have privately decided to do. <laughs> if you notice the way this works, Congress doesn't hold congressional hearings, bring in Chairman Powell and say, Chairman Powell, this is what Congress has decided we want the Fed to do. And then he goes to the banks and says, Congress has told us this is what they want us to do. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. It's the other way. The banks tell the Federal Reserve Board what they're going to do. And the board then, out of an obligation from Congress that they have to report periodically, decides that they're going to tell Congress, whether you like it or not, this is our decision. And Congress can sit there and question them about it, but it doesn't have any impact. But what do you mean the banks, banks do tell, what, they want. what do you mean the banks tell Powell what to do? What just because they own the Fed? Well, they decide what to do, and then they let him know what that, what's going to happen. What do you mean what to do? What do you, when reports, you say what to do, what does that mean? What, what raise interest rates, lower interest rates, buy bonds, sell bonds, buy uh, international currencies. You know, remember the Open Market Committee, which I think is probably the most dangerous arm of the Federal right, Reserve, right. The uh, does a tremendous team, amount right? of yeah. funds protection, and also they buy the foreign securities. So they're the ones that decide how many yen we're holding in American you know, government and how many uh, euros we're holding. By the way, today is the anniversary of the euro. Is it? Really? And today, in 1999, the euro was, uh, was first offered and came out actually, I think, stronger than the U.S. dollar, as I recall. Oh, at one point it was. But anyway, yeah. Yeah, now it's 88 cents this morning, I think. Our last time I yeah, checked. It was $1.25, $1.35 at the peak, I think. Not good. We should all go to well, Italy and buy a lot of pasta, baby. <laughs> well, here's the here's the one thing. When the U.S. dollar strengthens against the world's currencies, you talk to people that travel internationally. They love it. Oh, they love it. You know, they go to Europe and they go, oh, my dollar went so far. It was like, you know, everything we were buying, dinners and clothing and jewelry, everything, you know, all the accoutrements of, of playing on vacation were all a big benefit because the U.S. dollar was so strong. And when it's the other way, when the foreign currencies are strong, you always hear people going, oh, my God, I went to, it was so expensive. so expensive. You know, everything we went cost so much more money because the dollar was weaker. You know, so there are benefits to this back and forth. But, yeah, getting back to what we were saying, yeah. again, what my point is, is that the process does not go, Congress tells Powell, Powell tells the Fed. That's crazy. And then things are enacted. It's the other Has way it around. Has it always been the like this from, since 1913? It's always been since 1913. Wow. 
crazy. Because we gave them this authority to basically control and run the monetary system. But there was this little provision in the Federal Reserve Act that required that from time to time they report to Congress. Okay. That's about it. Okay. And that's basically what Powell is doing is he's reporting. Now, what's happened over the last 10 years or 15 years is more people have become aware of the Federal Reserve as an institution. Right. Most people don't even know it exists, let alone what it does, let alone that it's not a government agency, let alone how much influence it has on everybody's everyday wealth. Right. But as more people have become aware of the Fed, the news media and the, and the financial markets pay more attention now to what the fed does and it began to grow during the era of like era of like greenspan where he started making a lot more public statements that the you know they would dice to the nth degree to try to figure out and he was the master of green speak they used to call it right. he could talk for an hour and he was done and people would sit there and go what did he just say and we just say we're doing x or why remember when 60 minutes actually got him to say that they created the money out of thin air i mean yes the guy was pretty good he kept pushing him and and he, yep. he he didn't like saying it, but he he did say that, it. You know, he did say it. <laughs> therein, therein lies the reality. So, right. because the United States is forced with this economic environment where we authorized this banking industry to run itself through this private banking, you know, uh, institution, the Federal Reserve, they do have that ability to va- basically create money at will, and since they can do that they are able to alter the economy and i call it gimmicking or gaming the economy because they're it's crap you know again it's denying reality and they perpetuate this until something blows up in their face and when it does everybody comes a big up to do and then they try to address it somehow but i'm saying these problems are getting much more vast they're getting much larger now in the modern era, and they're getting so unwieldy and so large that there's effectively no other mechanism out there anymore. There used to be lots of options for ways to deal with the problems. We have only one left. It's printing money. And I think that's something the public needs to recognize. A government with $100 trillion worth of obligations that can print unlimited amounts of money as an option what do you think they're going to pick when it push comes to shove and politically they have to make the hard choice? Yeah. You know, I'm curious about the U.S. dollar index and why it is so strong. And, uh, 104, right? Yeah, let me look this morning here and see what we got. Well, remember, it was 115 back yeah. in November. Now it's 104. It's down a bit today and why, why gold is up. Crude is at, wow, crude is down four bucks this morning. Not going, going on there. Uh, but anyway. $70 for crude? Yeah, 73 uh, WTI. 70. So, um, all there's so many countries that are really having a hard time uh, because they're pegged to the dollar, and lots of them are wanting to get off, including Saudi Arabia. Iraq is going to sure. get off. They're they're done. They're going to get off. Uh, uh, Vietnam wants to because they're getting their butt kicked. You know, it's it's just not good. They're, they're, well, it's not only that. It's the fact that they're locked into this obligation well, yeah. they don't want to have they, to participate in. They don't want and, it. And, they just don't want it. Don't and want the it. fact is, is that it affects their own currency. If the dollar is strong, that means their currency is weak. Right. It's just, and that's a real problem internally because, you know, we're talking about domestically in America what we're experiencing. What are they experiencing? We don't right? live in Vietnam. Yeah. We, you're exactly. How bad is it there? How bad is it in Argentina and, and Brazil and all the third world countries that are having massive financial currency problems where their currencies are so weak 
that they're experiencing what I think America may look like in 10 years, but in the meantime, they're feeling it now. So, how, so they would rather not have to be pegged right. to the dollar. So as I said, Saudi Arabia, I think they're close to depegging from the dollar, and they're going to do a basket thing. Iraq is going to do it. They're going to depeg. I think they already have. Iraq has. Um, so... What does this do to the dollar as countries begin to wise up and depeg? What does that mean? What does that okay. mean for the dollar? I'm curious how that works. It, it, it's, it's devastatingly bad for the dollar. Really? Because? Yes, because the reason the dollar has remained strong right. is because we have force-fed the dollar across the world to all these foreign sectors. Because of banks. oil. Because of oil, right? because of oil and because of uh, Bretton Woods. So, you know, we've talked about this stuff a dozen times. Sure. We can go back and review that again. But the Fed required central banks around the world, one way or the other, whether it's arm twisting or by law, to stockpile U.S. dollars. They have to maintain a reserve of U.S. dollars, whether they like it or not. They that figure out a way. They dollars. figure out a way, right? They get the central banks to, to have dollars. They figure out a way. Yes. Okay. Yes. And most central banks hold foreign currencies. It's not sure. a bad idea. I mean, John Kennedy started it in the United States. He started the U.S. Treasury on a plan to help combat the uh, problems that they were experiencing around the world to try to avoid oil manipulation, to uh, infiltrate U.S. economic environments. He ordered the Treasury to start stockpiling foreign currencies. Did he really? So that Good if for there him. Was some, yeah. Now, the reason they didn't like him, right? Now, the reason they didn't like him. Yeah. <laughs> So okay. our our dem there's demand for the U.S. dollar all over the world for good reason. Number one, even though as weird as it may seem, we still are far better off than most countries around the world, even with the massive amount of debt obligations crazy, we have. Right? Yeah, that's crazy. It is, but again, relatively speaking, we certainly still look better than most other countries. And by default, that means a good rationale for holding some dollars. But that's only because, let me interrupt for a second, that's only because we have this massive amount of debt and we're just, we're just adding zeros. That's the only reason we have relative, we're relatively better than others, correct? Yeah, because they're adding more zeros than we are. <laughs> okay, all right. Or all more, right. more rapidly. So go ahead. And so, they don't have demand for this. So countries start to depeg. Isn't this a big deal if Saudi Arabia depegs? I mean, they're already- It's a real big deal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a real big deal. Again, all these things are threats to the stability of the U.S. dollar because without this demand for dollars outside the U.S., yeah. we are then just like every other country that doesn't have demand for its currency outside its borders. Everything now becomes internal. We have no outside resource to help support our currency. So that we're makes, gonna have to do we have to print more and then inflation goes up like Argentina. And we're going to have to deal with our own obligations a lot more readily because we're not going to have outside buyers to help support our currency. That's a real problem. If the demand for the U.S. dollar falters around the world, we're in big trouble. It is. We're true. in big trouble. I follow this stuff and I look at it. And it is. There's a lot of countries saying, you know well, what? Look at what with Russia too already, Freddie, and Russia uh, and yeah. uh, uh, Iran and, you know, and the BRICS thing. They got their own deal going, man. They got. They got bumped from uh, uh, the SWIFT thing, and they're just doing fine. Thank you very much. And I think that you're going to find that they're, the more there is a pushback to hold U.S. dollars around the world, uh, the more pretenses we will come up to, go to uh, liberate another country or Jeez. whatever it is we need to do to make sure that they stay on board. You know, we will fight dirty. Uh, Which they, we have, I, right? I've seen this enough times just in my lifetime. There's no question about it in my mind. 
the U.S., the Federal Reserve System will not simply allow the dollar to fade away because a couple of countries decide, hey, we've had enough. We don't want to play anymore. We're going to force them to do this one way or the other. Because if we don't, it's game over. It's game it really over, right? is. There's no, right. no sustaining the U.S. dollar without well, We saw what they support. did in Libya and Iraq just too. Uh, you know, we saw that what they're willing to go for just to protect yeah. the dollar, right? I can't imagine what the dollar would look like if it didn't have international support. We'd have inflation in the United States that would be more like that 30%, you know, visible inflation that would be extraordinarily large. And talk about public outcry. Again, if we was have people screaming at 9%, imagine what they'd do if it was 30%. So I'd really like to understand more. So say Saudi Arabia depegs from the dollar, but that's just in their 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 the value of their their um I don't even know what their currency is um, whatever it is so why does it uh, when you depeg does that mean you need to have less dollars around in your central bank is that what that means yeah it means you don't have that obligation anymore to stockpile dollars to keep that stability in your currency and again if you don't need it and don't want it and don't demand it, then we have a problem because we have to have support for the dollar outside the U.S. Why does just being pegged to the dollar, like in Saudi Arabia, um, make uh, Saudi Arabia to hold more dollars? I mean, isn't it just a mechanical thing on some currency exchange that did pegging? What am I missing? Well. Because, first of all, there's some things that require U.S. dollars. We have to pay U.S. dollars to buy certain goods. Certain obligations have to be paid back in dollars. Uh, For example, Saudi Arabia holds $100 billion worth of U.S. government debt obligations, and they want to get paid, or they want to pay us back debt that they owe from whatever it is. We only accept it in the form of U.S. dollars. Gotcha. Or if they're going to buy airplanes or something, we may say, we we want your dollars. We want dollars. We want your dollars. We want it in U.S. dollars. So we can perpetuate that demand and require that stockpile. So, you know, to peg your currency against another currency, the idea is to create some stability and, and again, uh, offer the opportunity for the currency that you're holding to have additional support, you know, which, again, the world deemed as a responsible thing to do after World War II to support the U.S. dollar. Seemed like a good idea. Because <laughs> at that point, you know, look, you know, we, we fought back the, you know, the horrible uh, war effort and we won the war. And here we are now as the savior of the world. We spent the money <laughs> to rebuild Europe, right? The whole Marshall Plan and everything we did since then to support Europe, everything we did. But again, along with that came these obligations to say, yeah, we'll help you out. We'll rebuild. We'll do all this stuff. We'll provide protect. We'll have another, uh, you know. Hold on. I got support. We'll help. But it comes with a cost. And the cost is. You got to stockpile dollars. You got to buy oil in dollars. You got to buy gold in dollars. And uh, that's the way the game is going to be played going forward. But again, some people are getting tired of the fact that they've had this obligation and there's some pushback. Uh, Patrick Timponi, along with Fred Jaszewski, we got a little internet thing here. Quickly, I'm going to just. Do any specials, Fred, while we're doing this? Um, right now I've got two things available. One, I've been buying a lot of the $20 MS 65 graded St. Gaudens. 
And the reason I've been doing that is because from a price standpoint, these are very high quality grade mint condition coins that seem to be lagging a little bit and having moved up in price with the upward movement we've seen. When gold ran down uh, the middle of the summer last year, it got to a low of around 1650. It's now at about 1850. But the St. Gaudens and MS65 did not jump $200 in price. They sort of have been lagging. And that happens sometimes. Um, and then they tend to go up quickly. I happen to think at this moment in time, that particular grade looks to me to be rather undervalued. Uh, they run around just under 2800 a coin, about 2775 to be exact. These are pristine MS65 NGC graded $20 St. Gaudens. That's the full one ounce size U.S. gold coin minute from 1907 to 1933. I think they're a fabulous buy at these levels and definitely provide people with wealth protection that I think now is just absolutely essential. Yeah, great. And then in silver, great to save. Are I these, do have bags of quarters, dimes, okay. and halves. Are these on your website under specials? Uh, there's an image of it, but no, it's not there as a special. We had some uh, holiday specials. We had a tremendous response to. We blew through those oh, and great. sold out within a couple of weeks. Um, so That's the ones we talked about last month. Right. Yeah, the ones we talked yes, about yes. last month. Good. So, so these are just not on the website. So we're talking MS65, um, St. Gardens, 1907-1933. And what are you selling them for in average? 27.75. 27.75. Be great to get a handful of these puppies and just put them in your underwear drawer, right? Woo. Yeah. <laughs> you know, listen, a nice row box of those, 20 coins in a, in a row box, it's just a great way to put money away and, again, secure wealth because I think, again, uh, the dollar is going to face a lot of problems this year. It has and to. And if we get Everything more of this Saudi Arabia-type pushback, it's going to just make that problem happen much more rapidly. We cannot sustain a significant pushback against the dollar. And I guarantee you, hmm. I know I'm being kind of, you know, conspiratorially That's minded a, we here. We love it when you put it on your tinfoil hat. It's fine. I don't me. know where that comes from. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, I just don't believe that we're going to sit idly and allow this to go by and right. the Fed's just going to go, yeah, okay, they don't want to play anymore. Yeah. I don't believe it. No. Yeah, They'll I mean, come up with some ridiculous excuse for something completely unrelated, you know. I you mean, know, look. Um, 2001, we went into Afghanistan, right? Yes, Effectively to fight off 9-11, the, right. you know, right. combatants in 9-11. Right. The idea was we were going to spend, this was the, this was what they told us, a billion dollars. Right. We were going to spend a billion dollars in Afghanistan starting in 2001. Well, uh, I think Biden has begun to pull troops out within the last couple of months. We're winding that down now in 2022, let's call it. So we spent 21 years and instead of a billion dollars, we spent two point seven trillion. Is that right? Two point seven yes. trillion. My question is A, where, where did, did that money where come it go? Where'd it go? Yeah. Yeah. And then the do, do we understand how much waste? Um I don't know who jchristopher.com is, but that's what's showing up on my screen. <laughs> okay. Um Anyway, uh, I don't know where the money came from. And, of course, there was massive, uh, massive theft. I mean, literally, cash, billions and billions of dollars went, just disappeared. You know, planefuls were flown over, and we don't know where the money went. And, of course, a lot of that ended up in other smaller al-Qaeda-type entities, hmm. uh, which obviously has created a, a longer-term problem for us. So we wasted 
uh, you know, I mean, the estimates are as much as 30 or 40% of the money that was spent was wasted, literally just stolen or wasted. And if we're talking about $2.7 trillion, that's an awful lot of zeros. And then I think they left 80 billion worth of planes and stuff there when Biden. Oh, yeah, besides the equipment that besides we Besides that, yeah. So we had that 2008. Again, we spent a trillion dollars trying to fix the economic disaster created by mortgage backed securities. 2012, we had more economic disasters. 2020, COVID kicked in. We spent a couple trillion there. In the last 20 years, the amount of money that we have blown through has been incredible. I mean, at a pace that no one has ever seen. And it's the reason why, you know, you add it all up and suddenly you're looking at the first time in, in world history, you got a the United States sitting with a hundred trillion dollars with debt obligations without any ability to repay it. And, you know, I, I think this is all fundamentally coming from the fact that we have this central banking system able to create money. So Congress knows that it can authorize any amount of capital and the Fed will print it. They'll make good whatever they have to in their obligations by printing the money. And it's the public be damned. And I'm sorry, but it's the we the people first. So we have to take care of the public better in, in dealing with our money system. And until we get this Federal Reserve corralled, under control, under control. this is just going to perpetually go on. I got something in my eye. I can't get rid of um, It's uh, your finger. Oh, well, that's, that, that, that's what it is. <laughs> um, you know, I, I've wondered about this before because somebody just emailed in and uh, uh, Billy and it's a really long email, but the gist of it is that, you know, he said, I understand this idea about fiat currencies and debt, but if it wasn't for that, nobody would be able to buy a house or a car. Um, how do you respond to that as a solid money? Well, that's, you know, that, that's actually, you don't need question. fiat currency. You, know? you don't need fiat currency for that to happen. You, you do need a kind of a expandable currency. I, I would accept that notion that, you know, spending a little more than you take in as a government is not necessarily a terrible idea, but it's a matter of of amounts, you know, and, and levels at which are controllable versus those that are completely out of control. I see. The idea if you create money, if you're increasing a gross domestic Banking product, system, it, it kind of ma balances out a little bit. If we had growth in the economy, sure. Uh, but with a fractional banking system, you know, we can create money for mortgages to be uh, accessible for people. And I recognize the idea that if we had a standard against the dollar and it was not fiat, less money would be available. Mm -hmm. But also the cost of the home would be significantly different. It wouldn't be as high sure, because we wouldn't have inflated prices. So I think in the end, it would sort of even itself out. And I think there would be just as much access to capital in a in a fixed standardized dollar than in a fiat system so i i don't think it necessarily translates that without a fiat system uh we wouldn't be able to borrow money to buy mortgages i don't think that's actually uh, the way it would work i just think they would be completely different in terms of both the value of the home and the real value of the money that you're borrowing yeah i, I it was a great uh, scene and it's a wonderful life remember when they were trying to take all their money out of the bank of Jimmy Stewart's bank, and they were talking about a mortgage, and and he said, um, "Well, you know, you borrow money from us because it'll take you many years to borrow to save five thousand dollars to buy your house. Five thousand dollars was the number. That, <laughs> was yeah. the number? I don't know when that movie was made, but it's funny, isn't it? Five thousand dollars. Got to be what forties, I think. Yeah, it's 
Yeah, something like five. But yeah, that is kind of funny. Five thousand dollars. Yeah, I remember when we, my parents bought a home for us. You know, six kids at the time. I think it was uh, nineteen fifty-five. I think it was like twenty-seven thousand dollars or something. Yeah, I think my, my parents bought our home. You know, in New York when I was a kid in the early sixties, about twenty-six, twenty-seven thousand yeah, dollars. Wow. You know, yeah, that was pretty average then. Who would have thought if you would have said to somebody in 1965 <laughs> that an average home is going to be, you know, 400 grand. $400,000. People would be like, well, how would anybody ever pay for that? You know, how would that happen? How would that happen? You know, it's all a matter of zeros, right? So during the time we're seeing all these rising interest rates, and then this is going to be a big problem for the housing market, as you referred to. Do we know uh, late 70s and, you know, when mortgage rates got to 15%, were there still people buying Homes back then, I guess they would. Huh? Well, yeah, I mean, there's always going to be always gonna a be. demand for homes to some level. I mean, people have to buy houses at some point, and they pay what they have to. Wow. Uh, obviously, it, it limited the amount of people that were able to make those payments and finance houses, so mm. it slowed that buying down, which was its intent. But yeah, believe it or not, even at twenty three percent mortgage rates, there were people buying Can homes. You imagine what your house payment would be at fifteen or twenty yeah, percent? Yeah. yeah, not good. Of course, you can always refi. I mean, it would be painful. Well, that's what that's what they people do. That's what they right. do, right? And, and the smart people bought CDs and locked them up as long as they could, and you know, try to keep rolling them over until the banks finally said, "We just can't do this anymore." And you know, the banks have gotten kind of interesting too in, in dealing with money. You know, I've talked to two or three people in the last thirty days who, for one reason or another, wanted to either deposit or withdraw, you know, a significant amount of money. Let's say like fifty thousand dollars. Right. Uh, one guy went into his bank and they said a flat out no. Can't he do just it. said no. You can't have your money. And he's like, well, wait a minute. This is my money. I want it I right want now. It. Right. Give me my, you know. And he had to jump through hoops and come back two, three times and, you know, eventually was they able eventually to get capital. Gave, they together. eventually but, gave it to him. Uh, but I'll tell you, um, you know, we're, we're really running a very strange environment where the money that's sitting in banks isn't really accessible to people because the banks really aren't handling cash that much anymore sure. to the level where they can, you know, you want to walk in and say, okay, I've got a million dollars in my bank. I want my million dollars. Hey, no way. No and way. I want it in cash. Yeah, no and they're basically going to say, you know, no. I mean, <laughs> that, that's not the way the system is supposed to operate. No. Banks are not supposed to decide whether or not to give you your money. They're not your parents it's going, no, It's not like you you're asking for money. gold or anything. You're just asking for paper. You're asking for your own money, right? <laughs> that they are that's under right. a fiduciary responsibility to hold and sustain and pay you interest on. And, you know, but yeah, it's getting very strange. Did, did so. you see where... Didn't they were trying to raise that law, Fred, to go from how much money would be reported to a lot lower from twenty thousand? Was it down to five? Oh, it's way way below that. It was at ten thousand on ten ninety nines coming into two years ago. The bank will not say flat out what the new number is, but it's already under ten thousand. Right, but I think they were going to do like five thousand, but there was a lot of. Uh, pushback from people like PayPal and stuff like that. They didn't want to deal with all that. And I think they've yep. they put that on hold for the time being. I think it's still at whatever it was, 10,000. It's probably somewhere around eight, eight grand, 8,500 or so. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I, I have experienced a little bit of this and, and there are some times where even under 10,000, they're, they're asking questions, asking to, you know, give a social security number, fill out a form here and there. It's interesting, 
um, there has been a war on cash for a long time. Sure. You know, they've been pushing to try to get people to not use cash because, again, they hate the fact that it's, you know, unreportable money. Uh, they would rather have you use something, a check, a credit card, you know, something that they can keep a track on. So uh, it's interesting how this strong pushback from the banks for people trying to get their own money. I mean, that's... Well, if, that's, I, uh, if I had the problem of having a whole bunch of money that I wasn't doing anything with... I, I think I'd be holding about half of them in gold and silver coins and the other half in $100 bills. That's what I'd be doing right now because if they do something yeah. really wonky in two years or central bank digital currencies or I don't know what they're going to do, at least you'd have money to spend, you know, and then you right. can sell your gold and silver and get more dollars and take dollars to the HEB and buy food, for goodness sake. You know, you know people ask us a lot about how you yeah. use silver coins. I'm like, well... You know, I hope to God it never gets to a point where we have to use a silver quarter to go buy food at a supermarket because that's a pretty bad indicator. No, that's, that something that wouldn't be, that seriously wouldn't be good. Awry, that wouldn't right? be good. No. No. That's a real problem. I mean, think about everybody at every supermarket every day wow. spending money, going to the cashier, buying whatever, $50, $100, $200 worth of food. And suddenly you can't pay with a credit card, a debit card, you can't write a check, and you can't spend paper money to do it. How is that going to work? So the thought process of people saying, you know, I think I'm buying silver coins because I believe the dollar is going to become so unusable <laughs> that we would need to conduct commerce with another form of currency. Wow. I mean, Whoa. I don't think people realize how bad things would be if that were the case. So I don't foresee the use of silver coins directly that way. Right. I see it as a storage of value. Because you could always sell them for paper dollars. You can always sell. Or whatever the currency, your central bank, digital, whatever, whatever it might be, it can be converted into whatever the currency of the day would be. Right. And that's how... I don't know why you're freezing up. I mean, I think I'm having a little problem with my internet. Nope, trying to, I'm back. Uh, uh, I, I was just thinking that if the central bank digital thing goes through and in, in the future, that I don't want to participate in that at all. I just, I don't want to you be... You may not have a choice. Though. Well, you know, if I had dollars, that you, you wouldn't have to join, right? You could just buy what you wanted. Well, if someone will accept the dollars, but if they well, lock it down... Well, they'll always accept the dollars, wouldn't they? I don't know. Again, <laughs> if you're saying that we're shifting to the central bank digital currency and at some point they turn around and say, these dollars are no longer well, a Yeah, well, I mean, but there's right? there's probably 40 trillion out there and most of them around the world, $100 bills... You'd have to give people years to to get rid of them. You oh, just absolutely. You just yeah, couldn't no, just I, say I, no. You know, end of story. No. Nope. Yeah. That's been my position right. for a very long time. Sure. That this is not an overnight process no, no, by no, any means. No. Even if they announced it tomorrow, it would take a decade for people yeah. to kind of unravel. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you if so, you yeah, said hundred dollar bills are no longer good, wow. you know, you'd have you'd have people storming the central banks and the banks of the world just taking them over well yeah. it would look like the 1970s all over in other words all the money in europe and asia would come pouring into the u.s people would be dumping dollars as fast as they could oh, yeah. if we start saying that these are no longer viable or they'd be converting it into other currencies other foreign currencies which means that those values would increase the u.s dollar value would plummet and all this money would pour back into the u.s as a safe haven um, as a resource because we would be the last standing right. buyer of dollars <laughs> and that means the inflation numbers in America would skyrocket and we'd experience a horrific economic environment. But, but certainly there's some kind of international laws that, you know, mm -hmm. if, if laws me even mean anything, that if you have a viable, uh, um, what do you call it, a real debt, what a dollar or uh, whatever it is that you want, 
that you just can't say it's no longer good. Don't you have to get some kind of a time frame? I mean, you'd have to, right? Well, you'd have to do it just from a, a mechanism point of view. Even if it wasn't a legal obligation, there's just no simple way to do that. Yeah. Uh, you, you can't convert an entire country's economy overnight and just say, you know, the only way, the only time that they, you ever got away with that was remember the military script. Oh yeah, a civil okay, war. So during like during like Korea, for example, they would have military script that would expire, and they would say that as of Friday, this military script you're holding is worthless. You have between now and Friday to come in at the table and switch it out for what's going to be the new currency we're going to issue. So they were able to pull that off because they could set a lockdown time frame and they had a closed system. You know, you had your military officers, you had your military men, and they were all within a framework where they only could spend these military notes. That's how they conducted commerce and the countries they were in accepted them mm -hmm. because they were government issued military notes but that happened all the time they would set obligations and debt dates and say okay we think that there's been a little bit of let's say fraud in these current notes and we're getting to the point where we're going to switch them out and they would lock it down by a time frame and say you know by friday if you don't exchange these notes they're worthless and everybody would of course rush to the table and sure. switch them out for the new notes and they'd start over again so i mean they would have to do something like that over a longer period of time, but then they'd have to educate everybody. You know, I mean, listen, you've got people that can barely use a computer. You're going to teach these people how to use essential digital currency overnight. Oh, I know. Uh, it's, not it's just not going to happen. Uh, just right. It's going to take a long time, even once they pull that trigger. Huh. And I do believe they'd like to see that happen. And oh, I, I think eventually so. we probably will see that, but I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Probably not. Probably not. Okay, Freddie. Well, uh, I would keep an eye out. I would keep an eye out this year. Uh, uh, just keep an eye on the dollar. Keep an eye on what's happening around the world. Push back against you know countries like Saudi Arabia that don't want to stockpile U.S. dollars, and watch the impact that has on the value yeah. of money if that starts to become a trend. I like to follow that kind of stuff. Again, I think it's uh, geopolitics and finance is kind of fun, you know, to look at what's going yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. But it is game over for the U.S. dollar if that <laughs> happens. If we lose foreign support for the U.S. dollar, it is literally the end of the entire economic environment of paper unbacked U.S. dollars. the The whole game would become a, a, a just it would implode. So that would be a mechanism if they know this is coming to do a digital currency central bank, right? Uh, that's the way they would save it. <laughs> that's the way they would save it, right? Yeah. yeah kind of a convoluted way to get there yeah. but yeah, yeah. i mean uh, again it would be that hegelian dialect right here we have this problem but we have a solution for you <laughs> and uh since everybody's pushing back and the dollar's imploding here's what we're going to do that's right we're going to solve the problem by switching to a digital currency that you're all going to have to accept but it's going to resolve the problem of the dollar that's falling apart so uh, we didn't even mention it before be we go we we talked with our source uh, russell bentley who's in uh ukraine and I uh, talked to him for two hours yesterday, and he's fought uh, in the Ukrainian army against the Nazis, not against the Russians, and he's a real patriot. He knows his stuff, he's got a lot of, and he says there's just no way, no how, that Ru Putin is gonna ever, ever, ever stop. He's just not going to. You know, he, he's gonna get Donbass and that Crimea region, which they've already voted to become part of Russia, they voted, and, and and then do the deal to not have Ukraine put in um, NATO, and then he's out of there, you know, and he, he has what he wants. But he says he's not gonna go anywhere 
until that happens. And so, um, but we just sent, we just sent old, what's his face, another $45 billion, Zelensky. $45 yep. billion taxpayer dollars. Yep. And, and Russell Bentley said, most of that money is being stolen. Most of that money is being stolen. Fred, you they're know. actually selling some of these weapons in other countries that we're sending them. Right. They're, send, they're selling them in Germany and Syria, and they're selling them. Well, I hate to say this, but this has been happening since the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. Same, same thing. They've been doing it, right? The, the graph that has gone on Jeez. is just its stunning. The numbers are just absolutely stunning. Yeah, I just can't even envision what it would be like to lose a plane filled with cash <laughs> just to have it disappear. In Afghanistan, that happened? Yeah, several times. Oh. Yeah, not just once. Boy, oh, Russia and China and uh, and Iran, they're having some fun. They're getting together and uh, they're not fooling around, boy. They're gonna they're gonna they're gonna do well without the dollar. They're they're figuring out the the game plan, boy. Yeah, you no. Know, if I were a foreign country, I would be probably doing the same thing in one of two boats. You know, you either have to decide you're aligning yourself with the U.S. and everything right. it believes in. Therefore, you're going to support the U.S. dollar. Right. Not because uh, it's a great currency, but because you support the concepts of everything America fights for and believes in. Right. Or no. you're going to take that kind of sovereign position and say, you know, U.S. has its own problems. It's not our problem. And we want our country to run, you know, our own country. We don't want to be part of this other environment that uh, drags us into things that we don't want to be part of yes sir so it'll yeah. be interesting to see how those battle lines well, are drawn the nationalist again I, I'm gonna, is, is, i'll put it out there that yeah. you watch the pushback if anybody really if they if somebody really pressed. really does it have you seen yeah. the this lady in italy you talk about a nationalist well she's out of control boy she is just hardcore man and i think they're they're going to get out of the euro too they're they want to dump out of the euro you know, that the, would be if, interesting yeah if italy goes if italy goes well, it's a fun time to be I around. I do it better than Brexit because Brexit was a mess. I know it's you know I I, I haven't followed that. That much. did not go smoothly. It did not go smooth. All right, kiddo. So tell folks about your website and um, what you got going on over there if they want to come yeah, or call you. Capital.com. So uh, again, capital spelled like the building. Uscoincapital.com. Please visit the website. Uh, check out all the links for various things that we have there as far as information is concerned. And don't help. Don't uh, hesitate to give us a call. One eight hundred eight seven eight two six four six. We've got a well-educated staff of people that will help you understand and figure out the best process for properly accumulating some physical gold and silver coins as wealth protection, which I think this year is going to become absolutely Whoa. essential. I think you guys are going to have a very busy year with what we're going to see. So, but your folks have the time, and you to to talk to people um, and try to figure out what they want to do, what they have to work with, and try to help them out. Because I know, I know you've long enough, Fred Dushevsky, that you're just not into selling people stuff just to sell them. I know you've never done that, and not going to do it. Not going to do it. Nope. And we're happy to help people because I think, look, you know, I've I've taken the position from the time I started almost 40 years ago now in this business that the public needs to understand the nature of money. It needs to understand the flaws with an unbacked currency and a central banking system that we have no control over because it affects their wealth. And people talk about things that affect their health and they change their lifestyle in order to impact 
the quality of their health. They do different things. You know, we learn things over the years, like what not to eat or things at least to, you know, curtail uh, and ways to be better and more healthy and things that we right. should understand. Right. The same thing is true when it comes to money. Right. There is a fundamental process for healthy wealth. And most importantly, the single most important thing people can do is diversify. Just don't have all of your proverbial eggs in one basket. Don't denominate all of your assets in things tied to a paper dollar that is subject to change in value. Diversify your wealth. At least put a portion of your long-term money into something that has a shot of appreciation over time and will at least sustain its purchasing power. That is absolutely essential. And I think that your point is well taken uh, for 2023 and what's going on. And there are more and more even close to pseudo mainstream and alternative places talking about the Fed, talking about the dollar, talking about gold. The people talking about gold is uh, out of control right now. People like Peter Schiff and Martin Armstrong, all kinds of folks. Uh, Tom Luongo, who we have on regularly, uh, they're very bullish on gold and silver because they understand what's going on. They just understand. Sure. Yeah. And I think they, you know, some of them, like, they recognize the fact that at any given moment, this entire game that we're playing, <laughs> you know, somebody could pull back the curtain and, yeah. Yeah. you know, a lot of them anticipate for one reason or another that's going to happen in some time frame. Uh, I don't know about any of those particular things, but I get it and I understand what concerns people. You know, when it starts to become pretty clear that the government has so much debt obligation that the only thing you can do is print money, people need to recognize that there's no two ways about it. You can't just print trillions and trillions of dollars and not impact the wealth of the public. And people should recognize that that is the, the road that we've taken. That is the choice that we've made, and we better address it now or suffer the consequences by ignoring it later. Yeah. Well, it's certainly um, a, uh, I think it's a pretty monumental shift changes going on financially and geopolitically around the world. I mean, you can see it, right? Big stuff. Big is moving. So where it's all going to go? Well, glad to have you here once a month so we can uh, walk through it. Fred, thanks a lot for being here. Uh, Fred's number, again, is triple eight. No, no, I'm sorry. Eight hundred eight seven eight two six four six. Yeah, I get confused with that. Eight hundred eight seven eight two six four six. Talk to Fred or one of his staff, and he'll take care of you. Okay, brother, take care of yourself. Happy, uh, happy New Year, twenty twenty three. Happy New Year to you, Patrick. I hope it's a happy and healthy one. Thank a great you. one for everybody listening out there. And again, uh, any questions at all, we're we're reachable. Thank you, Fred. Take care. Fred Jaszewski and the Real World of Money, 800-878-2646. He's the real deal. And uh, I hope you uh, give him a call if you need something. And uh, he's a good man, as you know. Well, if you're new here, uh, Fred was the uh, um, uh, partner of Andrew Goss, who uh, we did a show with Andrew for, gosh, how long was it? Since uh, 2008 and when we first started on this show. And then we started talking with uh, Andrew Goss, um, I think in the late 90s on a local um, Austin radio station. So um, uh, we've known Fred and and Andrew for for a very long time. Okay, we're going to take a little break. Um, I'm going to just go down here and uh, maybe I'll try to comb my hair. Well, not really. And uh, we're going to come back and we have lots to talk about. Uh, We always get together generally on Monday afternoon or Wednesday afternoon. 
Oh, well, I can't do it. I'll just end it like this. I'll see you in a few minutes. So stay right there and uh, join us. Uh, you can call up and join the conversation. I love you all very much. Thank you. Uh, may the blessings be. Broadcasting from the beautiful Hill Country in Texas, this is One Radio Network.com.